Amen. Amen. I, I do have the honor and privilege to tell you that multi-site is working here at the Church of 1122. Uh, the saints of 1122 that gather to worship at Bay Meadows, they send their greetings. I, I want you to know, for those of you who worship here uh, at San Pablo, that the end of each service when we celebrate the salvation that God's done, we always let our brothers and sisters at Bay Meadows know what God did here at San Pablo, and they hoot and holler and scream because they love, they love you guys. It's really cool to be a part of a family that, that stretches all over town. And it's really cool to be a part of being in the middle of what God's doing. And Bay Meadows, the saints here at San Pablo send their greetings to you. Um, feels a little bit like a homecoming to me. It feels like I'm the college kid who got to come home for the weekend. And I get a lot of questions about how I'm doing. I get a lot of questions about my wife and my kids. And then I'm just blessed to get questions. How is it going at Bay Meadows? How is the church doing over there? And I just tell you, it's, it's going well. It's going well at all of our locations. And it's fun to be a part of. Not only are we in the middle of what God's doing in multi-site, but we're also in the middle of a series called Miracles, where we're just kind of looking at these moments where heaven touches earth in an unexplainable but undeniable way. And we've been tracking through this, looking at these moments in which Jesus does signs and miracles. And we get the opportunity today to dig into one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, John chapter 9. And we're going to dig in. I, I always uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek, I pick on Pastor Joby. He always gives me um, texts that I, I just don't know how you're supposed to preach in, in one sermon, right? This is 41 verses. Uh, he takes about five minutes per verse. It would take him three months to get through this. And uh, we're going to do it in 45 minutes. And so tongue-in-cheek aside, uh, we get the honor to dig in. So John chapter 9, let's just read it and let's kind of sink into the text, to the narrative, to the story. Verse 1. And as he, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Just in all honesty, those three verses could, could take us an hour to dig through. Like, why did God give us pain? Why does pain, how does God use pain? Why are there disabilities? And as much as I want to just stop and dig into those verses for the next hour, honestly, um, I felt the Lord in, in my preparation this week press me beyond that. And it's a, it's a good thing that we have um, uh, years worth of experience because Pastor Joby preached an amazing sermon on pain back in December 8th. 2013, it was the second week of a series called Love That Sticks. He talked about Acts chapter 23. Uh, and in your bulletin, there's actually a, a direction that'll get you there. I'd encourage you uh, to listen to that, whether you're in pain or coming out of pain or going into pain. Um, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon because as, as much as we need to talk about pain, we just aren't going to have the space today. Let's continue. Verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some says, Is it he? And others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. 
which was my first memory verse ever. Just thought that would be a great way to start the Bible, right? I am the man. And then my next one was woman, and then from there it all fell apart. Verse 10. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. And they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, and he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They're literally asking him to blaspheme the name of Jesus. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. And we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And they cast him out. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said, You have seen him, and he is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into the world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, 
your guilt remains. I love John chapter 9 for a bunch of reasons. One, it is literally, it's just a beautiful picture of Jesus loving the least of these. Like it's a beautiful picture of Jesus seeing a beggar and meeting him where he's at and giving him sight, but even greater, giving him salvation. I also love John chapter 9 because honestly, I think there's so much theological significance and depth here. I, mean, I was telling Pastor Britt this week, I said, man, really, I think this, this chapter 9 could be like five sermons. It could be like a whole series of sermon. We could just go verse by verse and spend hours and hours upon this text because it is, it's just so deep and beautiful. And I love that about the Word of God, that, that we could study it and study it and study it, and yet there's still more depth and there's still more beauty to behold. That the, the Word of God is living and active and constantly charging us and challenging us to fall more in love with its author. And as much as I would love to spend all the time the remaining this weekend just digging through this book and looking at every single nugget that comes out of it, I think it would be wise of us just to go ahead and say, we, we're not going to mine this one dry, but we're just going to go for what the Lord has for us the morning. And there's, there's a few observations that I think that the Lord would have for us. As I've studied this week and prepared this week, there's a few things that I want us just to grab a hold of. And I, I don't think they're necessarily linear. I don't think it's one, two, and three. I just think there's three things for us as a church this morning. Here's the first one. The invitation of grace is not one in which we must fully understand in order to receive, but that in receiving grace, we are called into a depth of knowing Jesus that we never even knew existed. Let me break that down for you. The invitation of grace, the invitation of Christ to receive his grace is not one in which is, it, it, we have to have a full understanding in order to receive. You see, grace by its definition is being given something you don't deserve. It's being given something you, you can't earn. And if it was required of us to understand grace, it would not be receiving grace. It would be attaining a merit. If it, was, if it was required of us to understand all the Bible and everything that grace has to offer before we could receive it, it's not receiving something you can't earn or deserve. It's achieving a merit. It's, it's earning a wage. It's, it's works-based knowledge that you say, look what study I've done, now I deserve it. And grace, thank God, is not um, requiring of us to understand it to receive it. But when we receive grace, there's just this yearning in our souls to know more about it and to know more of Jesus. That before grace, we don't even, we may have heard the name of Jesus, but before grace, we don't even know the person of Jesus. And so once we've received grace and we get to know the person of Jesus, our soul begins to yearn for a depth that we used to didn't even know existed. Let me show you this in the text. Just imagine for yourself, you're this blind guy. We don't know a whole lot about him. What we do know about him is that he was a beggar. Um, he was old enough to have had parents that he's already been kicked out of the house. And he's now moved into his full-time career of begging. And so he would sit on the side of the road and just beg for food. He would beg for crumbs. He would beg for anything and everything he could get. And not only was life tough for him, um, but you have to understand, like, first centuries, there was this teaching that if someone was born with a disability, it was because either their parents' sin was so wretched that God was hating the child, or that the child's sin was so wretched that God was pre-punishing him. Really poor theology. But for this young man who has now become a man that sits and begs, he's heard over and over and over again. He's heard rabbis walk by with their disciples and point at, you see the blind man? He was a blind man from birth. 
And the rabbi would ask their disciples, why do you think he's blind? Is it because his parents are so wretched or that God was punishing him before he was even born? And so this blind man's sitting here this day begging, and he hears disciples come up. He hears a rabbi walk up. And the disciples start the conversation like it always starts. Jesus, this guy that sits and begs, is it because he's a sinner or because his parents? And Jesus answers the question in a way that's never been answered before. He says, neither. He's actually he's blind so that the works of, of God may declare the glory of God. And Jesus hocks a loogie, which is a, a South Georgia translation of spit, right? It, it says spittle in some translations, which I think is worse than loogie, right? So Jesus goes, he just hocks a loogie. I think to some degree, he gets down in the dirt to remind everyone of Genesis 2, where God formed man out of dirt. He gets down in the dirt. He makes these mud pies. He cakes it on the dude's face. And I know the guy's sitting there going, okay, this is weird. It just is, right? You ever read the scripture and go, that's weird. Here's what you need to know. If any of you grown men try to rub mud on this grown man's face, I will throat chop you and kick you in the knee. It's weird, right? I'm still not even to the point that I understand my wife putting mud on her face, but it's something women do. It's okay, but if any of you cats try to put mud on me, it ain't cool. Just what right there, throat chop, you're done, right? This guy's sitting there in the absurdity of the mud. You know why I think he let Jesus begin to rub mud on his face? It was the first rabbi who had ever spoke to him. Every other rabbi walked by and spoke about him, about how wretched he was, about how God judged him. And this is the first time a rabbi had ever gotten down on his knees, spoke to him. So I imagine this beggar going, whatever this guy tells me, I'm going to do. So Jesus says, get up, go, rub the, go wash the mud off your face. He comes out and he can see. And for the first time, the world comes into color. Like for the first time, he comes up and as he's washing the water off his face, he's cupping the water and seeing the beautiful crystal blue of water. Like he's, he's hearing birds chirp. He's heard them all his life. And now he's seeing the birds in the trees. He's hearing dogs bark. And he's like, oh, that's a dog. He hears a cat. And he goes, God, I still don't understand the cats. And he just continues, right? Just, right? He continues. And he just, he's, he's running. He's just seeing things for the first time and running through town. And then he, he felt the warmth of the sun. He's felt it all his life. And now he's just staring at the sun. And people are going, you're not supposed to stare at the sun. He goes, I couldn't see five minutes ago. I'll do what I want to do. And he's just doing his thing and seeing. And it is, it's miraculous. And then he has these conversations. And I love, they're going to point to this fact that he didn't understand grace to receive it. I don't understand how mud makes, gives you sight back. I don't think he had a clue. Jesus did it. The first conversation he has, the neighbors come up to him and go, I think he's the guy. I don't know. Maybe he's not. And he goes, I am the guy. And they're like, what happened? And he goes, this, I love this. He goes, this man, this dude named Jesus put mud on my face and now I see. Well, they usher him off to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees ask him, who do you think this guy is? And he, the first time he said, I think he's a man. And then he's talking to the Pharisees. And he goes, he must be a prophet. And then they bring him back for the second time. He's talking to the Pharisees. He, and Jesus has moved from a man to a prophet. And now the, the beggar is going, he is from God. We should be his disciples. And then it ends with this conversation with Jesus. And Jesus says, do you believe? And he goes, tell me who he is. And Jesus reveals himself. And he goes, Lord, Savior. 
See, for, for this man to receive grace, he didn't have to understand it. But as soon as he received it, he went from I was blind to now I see, to this man named Jesus, to the prophet, to someone who is sent from God, to Lord God, Savior, I surrender all. And I love this picture for us as the church to go, you know what? The beauty of grace is that we don't have to understand it to receive it. I would say it this way. Understanding is not a prerequisite of grace. Understanding is not a prerequisite of grace, which is good. Think about this way. If the prerequisite of this blind man seeing was that he could see, he would never see. To be able to see, if you have to see and you're blind, you are forever handcuffed to the fact that you cannot see if you're blind. This is a beautiful thing for us because the blind can't see, the dead can't live, the self-glorifier cannot glorify God, the wretched cannot be righteous, the lover of darkness cannot love light. And as we look through scripture over and over and over again, it tells us this, for all have sinned and missed the glory of God. Every single one of us has rebelled against a majestic and merciful God. That every single one of us, since from the day of Adam till today, that every single one of us has been born in darkness, born spiritually blind, born spiritually dead, born with a desire to glorify ourselves, to please ourselves. We've been born wretched, black-hearted sinners. We have been born loving darkness. And if we had to undead ourselves, we'd still be dead. If we had to undarkness our own hearts, our hearts would still be dark. And yet in the beauty of grace, even we won't deserve it, God sent his son to stretch his arms out on the cross that says, if you're dead, come to life. If you're blind, you can see. If you love darkness, love light. If you are wretched in your own your activities and actions, be righteous in the imputation of Christ. You see, understanding for us is not a prerequisite of grace, which is good because if you and I are just trying to understand the things of God without God revealing to us the things of God, you and I do not have a big enough frontal lobe to grab a hold of the depth and majesty of God. And yet, in his love and his kindness, he reaches down and opens our eyes and says, you don't have to understand me to receive me. But the moment we receive him, he begins to call us into a depth of knowing him and loving him that we never even knew existed. You see, understanding is not a prerequisite. However, I fully believe that understanding becomes an implication of grace. I think the moment that we're given sight to the things of God, we are given a hunger to grow in what we know of God. The time we move from dead to life, I, here, here's, here's the thing. I think as God moves us from death to life, he gives us a hunger for life that we never even knew. I do not understand the believer who has tasted grace, who's tasted life, who's tasted righteousness. I don't understand the kind of believer that can taste those things and not have an unquenchable hunger and thirst for the depth of knowing Jesus Christ fully. Like, who would not throw off everything of this world to know the surpassing knowledge of Christ's burial and resurrection? One of the things that breaks my heart for the church, primarily the, the church in America, is that we would taste life and just be okay with some life. That we would see the light and just be okay with some light. That we would, we would taste the righteousness and grace that God gives us and just be okay with some. It breaks my heart that, that so many people across this country show up 
and they treat church like just kind of this plug and go. If I could just get a little bit of juice to make it through the week as if we were iPhones constantly dying and just need a little bit more. And God's going, I will, I will give you the fullness of battery. You'll never have to charge again. And it breaks my heart because I watch person after person begin to pursue darkness because they didn't just fall in love with light. Good, godly people who do not see the vast glory of God as something in which they could spend their life running after and then in a, just a, a moment of, of stupidity, a moment of selfishness, wreck their lives because they did not see the glory of God as being big enough to consume them. You see, some life is never good enough. Full, abundant life is found only in Christ. See, Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, I came to give you life and to give it to the fullness. You see, what I'm praying for for our church is that our hearts would beat out of our chest to know the fullness, the abundance of who God is, that we would know life, not just enough life to get enough charge to make it through the week, but we'd wake up every single day going, God, your glory is so vast, it will consume me yet again today. You see, we don't have to be at that point to receive grace, but I fully believe that grace is ushering us into that. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Let me read that again. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What is this saying? It's saying, look, when we look to Jesus, Jesus, when we begin to just angle everything in our life towards Jesus, what we begin to see is that for joy, he went to the cross and suffered. What's that joy? That joy that you would know him and know him fully. The joy that his salvation on the cross would declare, declare for you alive, declare for you righteous, give you sight, give you life, that the joy that you would go from being dead to being alive, he stretched his arms out in joy and endured the brutality of the cross. And not just the physical brutality, but the spiritual brutality of all the sin of the world being heaped upon his shoulders. And with joy, he endured it. And so when we look to him, we will not grow faint or weary because what it stirs in us is this affection, this, this desire to run the race as if it's the only thing that matters. Philippians chapter 3 says this, Indeed, I count, this is Paul writing, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead.
Here's what Paul says. Paul says, everything I have uh, attained, everything I have surmounted in life, I count it like trash to the burn heap for just the sake of knowing Jesus. And Paul had accomplished a few things. He had gone to the best school, like the University of Georgia of, the, of his day. He had, he had risen in the ranks of religious leadership. He had everything. He knew what it meant to have all types of blessing. He was, he was what every Jewish mom said, I wish you'd grow up to be like Paul. And Paul says, I consider all of that trash just to know my Savior, just to know Jesus. Just to, just to, I throw all of it away that I might gain in Christ what I could not gain on my own. Psalms 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I love that the writer here writes those together. He goes, would you taste and see that the Lord is good? Would you taste his mercy? Would you taste his righteousness? Would you taste his grace? Would you just gather a taste of Jesus, his sweetness, his mercy? That he, he says that he's the water in which you will never thirst again. Would you just taste his presence? And when you taste it, what you see is that Jesus is good. And I love the fact that he starts there and the rest of the verse ends. And blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Because if you taste and see how sweet and good and glorious Jesus is, where else can you turn at that point? Nowhere. The bottle can't do what Christ does. Another relationship cannot provide the sweetness that Jesus does. Another job clothes cannot provide the sweetness that Jesus does. Another great YouTube clip of your child being unbelievable and amazing cannot, cannot attain for you what Christ has already given you. And yet sometimes we taste and see that the Lord is good and we're just going to run and do our own thing. Here's what I know about life. This is true. Life is like a roller coaster. It's got ups and downs. You spend most of your time in between. There's, there's mountaintop experiences, there's glorious moments, and there are moments in which you do, not think, you do not think depression can sink lower. And here's what I know. As we gather across multiple locations and multiple venues in a room like this and a room like this at Bay Meadows and the sanctuary behind us, here's what I know to be true, that we walked in here this morning, some of us glorying in how great life is. Some of us tried to get here at 9 o'clock and could not get our body to move because our souls are so depleted. Here's what I know to be true. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If you are in a moment in which things are great, taste and see that the Lord is good because every good thing comes from above. And when you taste the Lord in the moment of of high, glorious moments, it will remind you when you rejoice in the Lord that there are times in which the the bottom is going to fall out and the only thing you can do is take refuge in him. We rejoice in him, we refuge in him, and we're constantly moving to the other. So what do we do when we realize that this invitation to grace is not one in which I have to understand, but it's freely gifted to me because of how good God is? I think we have to do two things. First of all, we have to be thankful for grace. Now, I'm not talking about thankful that the man, I'm not talking about like wedding thank you note level, right? Like, like, you know, you get your wedding thank you notes out and you start writing letters. And I wrote the first one, thank you for the toaster. We're going to toast things. I wanted to go with it's going to get toasty tonight, but my wife told me that was way too inappropriate. And I show it to her, and what do you think? And my, and my, she's like, you, you preach for a living. That's the worst thing you know I've ever seen. You, you need to, there's got to be more gratitude for a toaster. So from there on out, I just wrote Bible verses in them. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to toast this toast to the glory of the Lord. Thank you. 
I'm not talking about the weak thank you notes that we do for weddings. I'm talking about like Buddy the Elf seeing a full-size toilet. You know what I'm talking about? Like, oh my goodness. Like that kind of joy that when it comes out of you, people are going either it's Jesus or they need to go to the loony bin. That type of joy that just swells up in you that goes, oh my goodness. Do you know? You see what this world needs is not more Christians beating on their soapboxes, but more Christians glorying in their Lord. I think the same thing we got to do is this. Not only do we have to be thankful for grace, we have to be in a longing for the depth of knowing Jesus. I think the more authentically thankful we are, the more longing we become. I was thinking about it this week. I've, I've been a Christian for 25 years, right? I've been a Christian way. I don't even remember not being one. I mean, I know there was a day because I remember when Jesus saved me. So before that day, I must have not been saved. And so for 25 years, I have been a Christian. And I'm, I'm telling you, by the grace of God, I don't have a lot of scars. By the grace of God, I don't have crazy days, right? My wild days do not match yours. And that is not because I'm awesome. It's because for some reason, he graced me. And I say all that to say that the further I have pushed into the Lord, the further I have dug into his word, the further I've pushed into his presence, there's one thing I know. Every time I take a step deeper into the person of Jesus, I am blown away at the vastness in which I do not know, and yet he's still offering me. You, you do not graduate the gospel. Amen. Believers, we do not find a point in our lives where we get it. I, I've understood it. I've mastered this. We must constantly be longing. And the beauty is, is not only longing for Jesus, but Jesus is going, come on, get you some more. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Jesus is not holding anything back because he loves us. When you stretch your arms out on a cross and give your life, then every part of your existence has been offered to those who've surrendered their life to Jesus. The second thing we gotta begin to process as we realize that grace, that grace is, we don't have to understand it, but when we, we receive it, we, we want to know it more. The second thing is this, is that those blessed by grace carry a responsibility to steward what they know to be true about Jesus for the glory of God. That those blessed by grace, in other words, if, you, if you've come to a point in your life where Christ has saved you, you've surrendered your life to Jesus, you are a believer, then you carry the responsibility to steward what you know to be true about Jesus. I love the example the blind man gives us. Over and over again, he says this, I was blind, there was mud on my face, and I was see, I could see. And he just keeps going on and on again about what he knows to be true about Jesus. I love this, this, this to be encouraging for us. You're only responsible for what you know. You are not responsible to steward well the things that you do not know. That would be impossible. Jesus says it this way. And Jesus came and he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So he starts this great commission by saying, hey, as you go, as you live life, find people that help them take one step closer to Jesus. And then when someone's taking a, a step from not knowing him to knowing him as Lord and Savior, help them get baptized. I'm just going to tell you one thing that all of us are responsible for. According to the scripture, we are responsible to herald and declare publicly to profess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And so if you have surrendered your life to Jesus and you have not gone the next step in, in public baptism, baptism does not save you. You don't have to be baptized to get saved, but what baptism is is a step of stewarding what you know to be true about Jesus, that you were dead and you're alive. 
And there's a lot of us here who've surrendered our life to Jesus, and it's time to get baptized as a believer. And we love you so much as a church. We've decided to gather June 5th at the beach and help you publicly declare that you have, you have been saved by Jesus. And in your bulletin on the back are several classes. All you got to do is attend a class, and those classes are really to encourage you and to teach you and to help you understand what we're doing and how we're going to do it. And if you have not been baptized as a believer, I would tell you one of the things you need to do to carry your responsibility well is let's get baptized. It goes on, it says this, that Jesus says, and then teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. I think it's beautiful that Jesus does not command us to teach them the entire scripture, but to teach what he has commanded. I've I've given the past decade to teaching God's word, and I have yet to come close to teaching the, the the whole canon of scripture. But Jesus' instruction here is not that you go teach them everything. Jesus' instruction is once you've tasted grace, you're responsible to share what you know to be true. And 2 Timothy 2 says this, You then, my child, this is Paul writing to Timothy, Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, in which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying the same thing Jesus said. What you know to be true about Jesus, you are responsible to be sharing with others. Well, how do I do that? How do I steward what I know to be true about Jesus? First of all, it starts from a place of honesty. Like we steward what we know to be true about Jesus. It, it starts at this place of being honest. If you look at the man's example over and over, and he goes, I was blind. He does not lie about that. He does not make it sound as if it was just kind of halfway true. He goes, I was blind, and now I see. It's really important that we're honest, because if I just say, hey, guys, I can see, you're like, Okay, but if I tell you I used to be blind and now I can see, you're like, oh, that actually, actually means something, right? The good news means something in comparison to the bad news. And so for us, sometimes it's really easy for us to go, oh, you know, I, I used to make mistakes. No, we were dead, blind, wretched sinners. Call a spade a spade. I'm not saying glorify the sin in which you used to walk in. I'm saying let's be honest. I was dead in my sins and Christ gave me life. We have to be honest. We have to say I was lost but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. God is so good. Let me tell you, I could not save myself, and he saved me. First, we, we, we answer, we steward our responsibility by being honest. The second thing we do is we honor Jesus in our words. We honor Jesus. Over and over again, the blind guy goes, look, I don't know what happened, but Jesus was a part of it. He didn't even know how to say it. It wasn't like he had all the answers. All he knew was Jesus was active in the fact that he could see. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and I learned one thing. I learned a lot of things, but I learned one thing in particular in Sunday school. If it looks like a squirrel, it's Jesus. Here's what I mean. At any point during Sunday school, if you didn't know the answer, you just raised your hand and said, Jesus, right? Who did God give the Ten Commandments to? Jesus? No? Right? And no, actually it was Moses. He was like, I didn't remember that part of it, right? And so we went over and over again. If we got stuck, all we knew is if I don't know it, Jesus, and I think, I think it's a little tongue-in-cheek, it's a little funny, but honestly, isn't, isn't that just encouraging to us? I don't know. Jesus. I can't figure it out. Jesus. We honor Jesus. The third thing we, need, we do is we, we humbly admit what we don't know. This guy over and over again, he said, look, I, I just don't know. what I know Jesus did something, but I can't explain what he did. Job chapter 11 says, can you find the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of of the Almighty? Here's one of the beautiful things about the God we serve. He is so vast 
and majestic that one of the qualities I love most about my God is his mysteriousness. You see, here's the truth. If you ever get to the point where you feel like you can actually explain the whole um, person and being of God, you're no longer talking about God who created this universe. Can you just answer this question? You can't. Um, Do you know where God starts and where God stops? No. Do you know the depth of 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 the being of God? No. And I'm good with that because that means that God is so big, he's bigger than everything we could ever assemble. And there are moments, and this should encourage you, there are moments when you're sharing your faith that somebody's going to be like, where did the dinosaurs come from? Jesus, right? Go back to point two and just point to Jesus. There are moments in which we don't know, and it's okay to go, I don't know, but here's the beauty of God. His existence is not dependent upon our ability to articulate it. He's there whether we can say it or not. And so there are times as we're pointing to Jesus, and we're talking about grace in which we just have to go, I don't know, I can't wait to get to heaven to find out. And the last thing is this, we should be honest, we should honor Jesus, we should be humble, and we should be hungry. I think the more honest, the more honoring, and the more humble we are, I think it stirs in us this hunger. I love that the blind man, he, he, he looks at Jesus and goes, show me who this Jesus is so I can believe. And as we point to Jesus, it should stir us to go, I don't know, but I want to know more. The things I don't know, I'm okay that I don't know, but I want to know Jesus more. We, we should steward what we know for the sake, for the glory of God. And, and, and maybe one more question before we move on. Who, who are we responsible for stewarding this to? Well, I think we're responsible to steward it to our coworkers, to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors. I think that what God may do is he may use your story, your, your junk, to actually spark Life and spark a desire to run after Jesus in someone else's world. For me and my wife, we, we um, several years ago, we, we ended up having a miscarriage. We miscarried our first child, and it was heartbreaking. And I didn't even know what to say out loud, but all I know is since then, the number of times I've been able to say, hey, this is my pain, but God used it for his glory. He did not waste my pain. He didn't waste my story. And I've just seen men and women go, we just needed to find hope, and your story brought hope to us. It's why we show all the baptism videos, because we want, every time we show it, there's always someone that walks up and goes, yeah, that was my story. How'd you know? I didn't. God did. Right? We're responsible to show it with our care workers. I think we're also responsible to share it with our family. If you're a mom or a dad or a foster parent or you've, you've uh, just got kids that won't leave your house, they're not even yours, that I believe full-heartedly that God has put you in the primary place to res- be responsible to steward the gospel to your children. To steward the gospel to your children. I love Nugen. I love our ministry. They constantly, if you've got a little kid or a kid over there right now, they are pointing to Jesus in this moment. But the Nugen, the church, cannot replace the call of God on the parent. We will partner with you. We will not miss a chance to help disciple your kid. But it's your responsibility. And it's not your responsibility to tell them what you don't know. It's your responsibility to tell them what you know. And if you need a resource, in both of our locations, we have this incredible new-gen resource area. There's these great Bibles, and you read a Bible story, and then it's got a question. Who made you? God, why did he make you? For his glory. If you would just read the Bible story and ask the question, you are actually taking your child through catechism. And you don't even have a seminary degree, and you're taking your child through catechism and pointing them to the fact that God made you. Here's the truth. If the only thing you know is that Jesus loves you, Can you imagine a generation that grew up knowing that? 
just that. Just imagine a generation that grew up hearing their parents say, Jesus loves you in a way that your mom and dad can never love you, and we're going to spend every ounce of our energy trying to run Jesus down, but we never will because he loves you. Just imagine what your life would have looked like as a high schooler and a college kid if you'd have realized, Jesus loves me. I think we're responsible to our coworkers. I think we're responsible to family. I also think we're responsible to each other as believers. I think we have a responsibility to each other. Two of my favorite things to do, right? One of them is to play golf, right? I'm not great, uh, but, I, but I enjoy it, right? And if you're just looking for a foursome, you can find me after the service, and I will gladly, uh, we call it visiting the green family, and we'll just go on a discipleship journey together. It'll be glorious. Another thing I love doing is I love to sit around uh, late in the evening and, and, and with a dear friend or another believer or brother, and I love to just smoke a good cigar. And if that offends you, I'm sorry, Pastor Joby will be back next week. And he's way more offensive, right? So don't, <laughs> calm down. And here's why I love doing those things. Because whether you're playing golf with me or whether you're sitting down smoking a cigar with me, you're with me for at least an hour to four hours, depending on how bad of a golfer you are, right? And I love, I love, as soon as we settle in, I love going, hey, what's, what's God teaching you? You know why I like to do that? First of all, men are horrible with their words. And so they don't know how to use them. So I'm trying to teach men skills, right? Just use your words to Say what God's teaching you. But here's really why I asked that question. Because I want to know. Because what God's teaching you, he may mean to encourage me in my faith. And what God's teaching me, he means not only to teach it for me, it's not just for me, it's for this community. It's why disciple groups are such a big part of what we do. And if you're looking for a disciple group to try to find some affinity to be itched, we don't do disciple groups based off of like mommy and me club or college or any, like we just do them based off of getting godly people in a room and sharing what's God teaching you, what's God teaching me and watching the community begin to fill in the blanks because what God's teaching you, he may have not taught me yet. And as we share, my view of God grows because of the way you have seen God. It's why disciple groups matter so much. That together we go, we don't deserve grace. We don't deserve grace, but we get it. We don't understand grace, but we're growing to understand it as we begin to be responsible. I think this final point that I want to lean our time into is honestly probably the thesis of the whole thing. Let me say it this way. The physical healing of the blind man is a sign. It's a sign pointing to the reality of all men being born blind and in need of the miraculous work of Jesus on the cross to open their eyes to the things of God. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Joby gave us this great analogy. He said that a sign is something that points to something greater. He says like, it's as if you were driving into Jacksonville and you saw the sign that says Jacksonville five miles. That sign is not Jacksonville. That sign simply meant to point to something greater, which is Jacksonville. I believe wholeheartedly that this physical healing of a blind man is actually a sign pointing to something much greater. If it's just the physical healing of a blind man, it's something, it's a story we applaud. But if it is a pointing to the fact that you and I are born spiritually blind and Christ has come to give us sight and to set us free, it moves from something we applaud to something we receive and worship. We worship him because of this. It's a movement from physical to spiritual. The healing of the man born blind is not simply an account of a miracle story. It is. It is a count of a historically accurate event that literally happened. 
It's also not merely an exhortation to evangelism. Although I believe as we read the text, we would be encouraged to follow the example of the blind man and share our faith well. To be responsible with what God's taught us. But here's here's what I see. I think this is more than an account of a miracle story. I think it's more than an exhortation to evangelism. The healing of the man born blind is a manifested discourse of the spiritual depravity of man and the glorious nature of grace extended to man by Christ. What do I mean? I think if we take the physical sign and apply it spiritually, what we find is that every single one of us, because of the sin of Adam, every single one of us is born into a sinful nature. Every single one of us has sinned, and every single one of us is spiritually blind, spiritually dead, unable to see, unable to undead ourselves. And just like Christ gives the blind man sight, Christ's work on the cross gives us spiritual sight, gives us Life that we exchange our death for his life. Here's why I say this. I think verse 5, Jesus sets the table for the whole miracle. He says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. What Jesus is about to say is like, hey, y'all look at this blind guy and figure out why he can't see. And Jesus goes, open your eyes a little bigger. Um, This world is a dark place. And Jesus is saying, before I even heal the guy, let's just all go ahead and recognize Jesus is declaring he is the light of the world. That he is the one who has come to show darkness. That he is the one who's come to reveal all things. That he is a light of the world. And then he goes on into the sign. I think Jesus says, let me set the table before we keep moving forward. And at the end of the story, after the beggar who was blind receives his sight and surrenders to the lordship of Jesus, he says these words, verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. I think this entire text is pointing to this fact that all mankind is born spiritually blind and Christ has come to give sight to the blind. Not just physical sight to the beggar, but spiritual sight, that we would be able to see the things of God. And that's what he came for. Now, as we dig into verse 39, we got to see, he says, for judgment I came into this world, which is a contradictory statement than what he has made in other parts of John. Here, he says, I came for judgment. John chapter 3, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world or to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John chapter 12, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. It's a little confusing. When we begin to wrestle with Jesus coming to judge, our initial cultural response is, oh, wait, bro, I think Jesus said he didn't come to judge. So why is the church judging me? Jesus didn't come to judge. You got no room to judge, which is a, I don't even have time to unpack that biblical statement, how unbiblical those statements are, because Jesus says, I didn't come to judge. What did he come to do? He came to save the world. Let me continue verse 40. I don't want to make sense of this for us. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus clearly says, I've come to save. I've come to give sight to the blind. I've come to give light to the dark. I've come to take dead men and make them alive. But what happens is, as Jesus comes in light, light exposes the darkness. Darkness cannot exist in the midst of light. You don't shine a flashlight into a dark corner of the room to find darkness. You shine a flashlight into the dark corner of the room, and the darkness evades. 
And what Jesus says is this. His mission was to come and save. But as Jesus comes and heralds the truth that we are all spiritually blind, some of us in humility receive that and go, well, give me sight. Some of us in arrogant automatically draw our own line. What Jesus says is this, is that what becomes the judge is the truth in which he spoke. That when the moment Jesus walks onto earth, he draws a line in the sand and said, there is life and death, truth and lies. You cannot have two existing together. John Piper says it this way. When Jesus says for judgment, I came into the world, he means that inevitably, as I save people by truth and love and righteousness, a division happens and rebellion is revealed and people are confirmed in their unbelief. You see, Jesus did not have to come to the earth for there to be judgment. There was already judgment. Our lives, our sin had already stood judgment. What Christ came to do was say, you've already been condemned by your own actions. And Christ came through his actions to give salvation as a gift of grace. So when we begin to wrestle with the truth that Christ came and in his perfect, pure actions judged everything, the next thing we begin to do is we begin to try to hide from judgment. What we do is we defend ourselves from pain by trying to distract ourselves from conviction. There's some of you in right now, you've not even surrendered your life to Jesus. And right now your, your, your heart and your soul, it's, all, it's just convicted. And it's easier for you to get up and walk out and just let it go. But what we try to do, even as believers, is when we feel pain coming, we just try to distance ourselves from the place of conviction. It's just easier to not feel at all. If you don't, you know this to be true, but if you don't believe me, let me tell you the account of a lovely three-year-old. My three-year-old daughter, her name is Blakely Hamilton Stone. She's beautiful. She really is so beautiful. She's so generous. She knows things about the Lord, like God made her for his glory, and that orange is an ugly color. She knows those things. In fact, one time as we were Easter egg hunting, I saw her rebuke an orange egg and go, yucky gator egg. I refuse to pick it up. She's so gorgeous and generous. If she had a bag of cookies and you walked up to her and go, man, I have a cookie, she would take one cookie and she would keep it. She would give you the bag. She's beautiful. But a few days ago, the wretchedness in her own soul rose up. She found herself dealing with the fact that we were all born dead in our sins, wretched, black-hearted sinners. And as she took a colored pencil and began to draw upon the walls and the cabinets and the doors and somehow the toilet, as she began to draw upon everything upstairs, she did not come running down from a place of conviction and going, Father, I've sinned against you. You're going to have to cover my sins with a paintbrush. No, she hid. She hid, and my four-year-old Emery came downstairs and said, Mommy, you're not going to be happy. <laughs> and please don't yell at Blakely. <laughs> but Blakely has done something that no one likes. She colored on the wall, and she's hiding now. We all do this, right? We hide. She was in the corner of her room hiding from her mother because she had, she had sinned. And sometimes it's easier to look at a three and go, oh, that's cute, and tongue in cheek, and we can find ourselves laughing. But sometimes the truth is this, is do we not do the same thing in the presence of God? 
He has already covered our sins, and yet we still hide in darkness. The grievous wound at which truth causes its crisp pain is not a wound inflicted by Christ. In other words, the place in which you hurt the most, the wound in which Christ needs to expose in you the most, is not something he inflicted, but often is a wound inflicted by oneself, that in his sovereign grace he exposes the wound in his radiant light. That Christ is asking, would you open your eyes to see your blindness? Satan would blind us and lie to us and lead us to believe that the infliction of our wound was actually caused by Christ. And Satan would lead us to create contempt in our heart for Christ and doubt the grace he has offered to us by the blood of the cross. In other words, this, that when we begin to feel that moment of conviction, that moment where our wounds begin to get exposed, where we stumble into the darkness and we get called out, it's easy for us to, to just begin to hide from God. And the enemy, Satan, begins to come in and go, because God wants you to be good, he caused that wound. God did not cause the wound. Christ did not cause the darkness in our hearts. What Christ has done is shined his radiant light and glory upon it, exposing it, saying, lay it down. It cannot satisfy you, only he can. We can rest in the truth that our wounds have been covered by the blood of Christ. You were to be judged. You were to be judged. You were to sit in the seat of judgment, but Christ sat in your seat and endured the punishment for you. That which makes you most defensive to the gospel is in fact what the gospel most powerfully overcomes. I think it's easy to look at this text and go, it's a great text about a miracle story. I think it's easy to look at this text and go, it's a great encouragement that we should share our faith. But I think we lean to look at verse 9 and just let the weight of the text sit on our heart that I am he. I'm the one who was blind and now I can see. I was the one who loved darkness and now because of Jesus I love light. I think we have to come to a point where we read verses like, for those who he comes to judge, those who do not see may see. We need to go, that's me. I couldn't see and now I can see. I was dead and now I'm alive. In any moment in which we stumble back into the traps, back into the chains, we need to declare my chains are gone. I've been set free. No longer do I stumble in that but I walk upright, victorious in the grace, in the gospel that I don't even understand, I don't even fully deserve, but something Jesus is doing is changing me. I think we've got to look at the story and ask, why was a man born blind? For the glory of God. And it is for God's glory that you and I were born wretched, black-hearted, dead, because when he takes dead people and brings them back to life, the only one that can get the glory is God. And church, it has to compel us into a depth of longing for him. Because we were dead and now we're alive. We used to love darkness. We couldn't even see the light. And yet Christ has saved us and in his radiant glory has called us to be his own. So what do we do? We repent and we rejoice. We repent. For some of us, we repent of the fact that we live in darkness and we need, to, we need him to save us. For some of us, we repent that we've stumbled into darkness. We've stumbled into just being apathetic in our pursuit of him. We repent. He, he just, in that moment, graces us. And then we stand and rejoice that the God who is mysteriously vast is calling us to know him and to know him intimately. This grace is so amazing that I was once was blind and now I see that I once was lost, and because of him, I'm found. Church, stand and let's pray.
Jesus, we love you and we thank you that you first loved us. God, you are so good. God, we don't deserve it. We don't understand it. We can't even begin to wrap our our small minds around your vastness. And as large as you are, your call to us is intimate. And so, Father God, I pray that just lead us to a place of repenting and rejoicing. Repenting and rejoicing. God, that we would be truly thankful to the point that it would create us a hunger for you that's unquenchable. And we'd throw away the things of this world to know you. Father God, we pray all of these things in your powerful name. We pray all these things in your name by which the world knows is light. We pray all these things in the fact that you love us and that Christ, you came to die for us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, we're going to respond. I want to invite you, for those of us who need to just come and pray, whether it's a place of repentance or a place of rejoice, come and pray before the Lord. Um, We have giving boxes all over the room. If this is your home, we respond to the gospel by putting him before all things. And church, we're going to respond uh, today. I'd encourage you not to rush out of here, but we're going to respond by singing an old hymn, a hymn called Amazing Grace. And we're just going to declare together, Amazing Grace, I, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see.